Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us again in the book of Judges, chapter 3. Judges, chapter 3. Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. Find Joshua and keep going. Come to Judges, chapter 3. We have uh, already uh, highlighted a number of things that serve as themes through the book of Judges. You'll remember the problem in the book of Judges is that the people are rebellious. They find themselves, instead of being obedient to God, they find themselves blending in or melding in their lives with the unbelievers around them. God told them when they came into the promised land that they were to eliminate all of those people. They were to eradicate those peoples from the land as a part of His judgment. They were, God intended for the people of God to be the instrument of judgment judgment against the Canaanite peoples. They refused to do that. Instead, they decided their women were beautiful. They decided that their men were strong. They decided their gods were appealing. And they decided that their detestable practices from child sacrifice on down were not that detestable. They decided to become like the world. And so in the period of the judges that stretches a little longer than 200 years of Israel's history, Joshua has died, the last great prophet, ruler, leader of Israel, and now there is no king because we haven't got to the monarchy section of Israel's history. So Saul is future. David is future. Solomon is future. We're in that interim period between Joshua and Saul. So for more than two centuries, Israel has no leader, but they're looking for a leader. And that's the question that uh, confronts them. Who's our leader? Well, it turns out they have a leader, just like we do today. People would say today, for instance, in America, we have a leader. In fact, we do. We have an elected leader. But as Christian people, is our first priority to the state? No. Not today, not tomorrow, not any day. Our first priority is to God. So we have a leader, and it doesn't matter who the president is, we have a leader, and he's not the president. He's not the Congress, not some elected official of any kind. It's not our leader, ultimately. As Christian people, We are called to follow God. Well, in the case of God's people, they're not Christian in the Old Testament. You don't use that terminology in the Old Testament. But they are the people of God. And God expects them to act like that He is their leader. But the refrain in the book of Judges, uh, as an illustration, one one of these phrases, well, this phrase occurs multiple times, but it occurs once in Exodus 17, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know, if I don't have a heavenly leader, and I don't have an earthly leader, then all I got left is me. There's no restraint except me. If I think it, if I like it, if I want it, why not? Who are you to tell me what's right for me? Does that sound like America? Yeah, sure does. But here's the news, friend. We've been here before. The people of God have been here before. And frankly, we stunk at it. We didn't do a very good job some 3,000 years ago. It turns out that God intends for us to recognize that even though He's not here in the flesh, looking us in the eye physically, He is here in the Spirit, and He is here by means of His Word, which we shall see more plainly in a moment, to give us direction, to exercise authority, and to create the fences and parameters of our lives, and to show us this what it means to live under the authority of God. It turns out you are not an independent contractor. It turns out you are not without a sovereign. It turns out that you are not free to do whatever you want to do. 
You are not. Neither am I. None of us are. Every one of us live under authority. There's, of course, secular authority. We live under the authority of the government. But where the government disagrees with God, we submit to the ultimate authority, which is God himself. So who is Israel's leader in the book of Judges? Eventually, the people will say, we want a king. But the book of Judges doesn't answer the question, who is Israel's leader? You have to keep reading in the Bible to First and Second Samuel, because that's where the king thing happens. Saul, David, all that happens, First and Second Samuel. That's the next books in the Bible. But here in the book of Judges, we have an example of various judges who are used of God. Apparently, they're going about their everyday lives, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they are raised up by God for a task, and they're given a job to do, and they do their job. The problem with these earthly judges, as we're going to see even today, is they are flawed. That's the problem when you put your trust in an earthly man. Turns out he's flawed. I'm running this all the time. It doesn't matter when you're talking about political leaders or religious leaders. Funny little thing. Preachers get together. We, we talk about preachers who make it hard on the rest of us <laughs> by messing up. Because, you know, if you're flawed, then maybe my pastor's flawed and maybe every pastor's flawed, and then pretty soon we're all running around a little cynics. It's kind of where we are in America. The pervasive problem in America today is cynicism with any kind of authority. I'm not telling you it's the greatest problem, but I tell you that every Tom, Dick, and Harry I meet is a cynic. We don't like institutions. We don't like authority. We don't like bosses. We don't like pastors. We sure don't like government. We don't like anybody telling us what to do because we are children of our own culture. And our culture believes that somehow, someway, they are not accountable to any authority. Well, I'll tell you, friend, you're not going to find that in the Bible. It turns out you are accountable. And you may not be accountable to your earthly authorities. But if the book of Judges teaches you anything, it will teach you that God is paying attention to you. Not just us, not just the group of us, but I mean to you. If he's numbered the hairs on your head, he's paying attention. So nothing you're doing under cover of darkness is off his watch. We are under his authority. And the book of Judges is going to make that crystal clear as we work our way through it. So what the book of Judges does is it tells us or shows us what the Spirit of God can do in the life of a judge. Mostly men, but some women. And this Spirit of God work is done in the midst of crisis. I said a week ago that what we see in the book of Judges is this ongoing cycle, and you're going to see it, I'm going to point it out again. There is an announcement of Israel's sin, and its sin is usually either apostasy, professing to believe, but then acting in unbelief, or idolatry, apostasy or idolatry. Those are the common sins that we're going to see. Then there is a season of the Lord's oppression. The Lord responds to their sin by saying, I'm not going to let that go. I'm going to deal with it. And I'm going to raise up a foreign power. He's going to come and he's going to attack you. He's going to destroy you. He's going to hurt you. He's going to wound you. God's going to raise up these foreigners and he's going to come in. He's going to deal with this sin of his children. He's going to use the enemy against his own children. That bothers people, but doesn't bother God. God's got no problem 
using unbelievers to discipline believers. Does it all the time and has done it from the beginning of time. Then the people of God under this oppression begin to cry out. They repent, to use New Testament language. They say, God, we won't do it anymore. Come and help us. God, save us. God, fix this. God, take this away, and so forth. And then God delivers them. And how does God deliver them in the book of Judges? He sends a judge. Remember, the judges in the book of Judges are military people. They're not people in robes sitting behind desks. They're military people. We're going to meet a guy today whose name is Ehud or Ehud, if, from where I'm from, but Ehud is probably more accurate. Ehud. He's going to be a peculiar guy. And uh, he's going to meet a peculiar fella. I want to tell you that if, uh, if you don't like off-color stories, today's not your day because we're about to get off color. But I'm going to announce from the beginning, every word I'm going to read is in the Bible. And then God's going to give a season of peace or rest. So, from sin to oppression, crying out in repentance, deliver us. God delivers them, and then God gives them rest. And there's this cycle again and again and again. We mentioned there are six prominent judges and six minor judges in the book of Judges. So there are 12 mentioned by name, but virtually nothing is known about the six minor judges, and we know somewhat about the six major judges. The two most prominent judges that are given multiple chapters in the book of Judges, Gideon and Samson. So with that, let's read beginning in chapter 3, verse 12. You'll note that it begins again with this announcement of Israel's sin and God's oppression. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon. I've never met a man named Eglon. The king of Moab against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He, that is Eglon, gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now stop here because this is the problem, right? We have, we have identified, just look again, verse 12. We, we've identified the sin. Uh, verse 12, we've identified the oppression. The oppression is going to come from Eglon, the king of Moab. We've identified those things. Now you'll quickly look ahead. If your eyes will just look ahead. Verse 15 is going to be the repentance. They're going to cry out to God. And then the balance of this story is going to be God's deliverance. So this particular story mirrors exactly what happens six times in the book of Judges. But let me help you with a little uh, geography because that will help you think about it. For those of you who uh, know your uh, sort of general picture of the nation of Israel, Israel is, is two bodies of water connected by a river. So there's a sort of a teardrop at the top. That's the Sea of Galilee, all fresh water. Then there's a river, the Jordan, that connects down to the Dead Sea, a body of water, all salty, not made salty by any ocean, but rather by the mineral deposits there in the Rift Valley, the lowest part of the earth uh, is, is there at the north end of the Dead Sea. And so those two bodies of water form the eastern boundary of Israel as we understand it today. And then, of course, the western boundary is the Mediterranean Sea. So from the Jordan River and the two bodies of water all the way to the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, all of that in between is Israel. And so that's where all of the people of God are living, except there are tribes across the river in 
uh, that have, were commanded to take occupancy across the river. Two and a half of the 12 tribes were given land across the river in today what we would call the, the nation of Jordan. So as I've been to Jordan, it's mostly desert. Uh, don't recommend uh, you go there on uh, vacation unless you really, really, really like hot weather and limited water. So there you go. But those, those regions are described here with these kings, if you will, or regions of former kings. So Moab and Ammon are sons-in-law of Lot. Do you remember the story of Lot? Genesis 17, 18, I think. Uh, Lot uh, escapes Sodom with his wife and his two daughters. His wife looks back, turns into a pillar of salt, so just Lot and the girls escape. You'll remember that they're living peacefully, and the girls plot against their dad. And they say, look, we, our dad is getting old, and there's no men interested in us, so let's get our dad drunk. And on consecutive nights, they did this and went in and seduced their father, and they bore children by their father, the two daughters of Lot. He said, well, that's not very scrupulous. Well, again, they grew up in Sodom, not exactly a luxurious spot for moral behavior. So they bear sons, and one son is named Ammon, one son is named Moab. So the kings of Ammon, the Ammonites, the king of Moab, the Moabites, decide they're going to make war against Israel. And so they get together with the children of Amalek, the Amalekites, and they conquer Israel. They come across the river. See, they're over there in Jordan. They're going to kind of come across the river. So this river is going to matter in a minute because we're going to see they're going to have a battle at the fords of the Jordan. That's going to come back in the fifth judge because there's also going to be another battle at the fords of the Jordan. But they're going to have a battle here at the fords of the Jordan, and eventually they're going to win. Israel is. So let's read the rest of the story. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer or a judge, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Do you know how many details in the Bible don't matter? Zero. Do you know why this man, why it's important that this man is left-handed? Because he's about to do something with that left hand. Now, I'll stop here a minute. If you think a man is about to strike you, you think by default that every man is right-handed. But when you run into a southpaw, you got to watch yourself because it's going to come from somewhere you're not expecting. You expected it to come that way, but it came that way, and he caught you off guard. So here's a left-handed man who's about to do something tragic to Eglon, the king of Moab. And he does it with his left hand because he is left-handed. So the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So they have to pay taxes. So they send the, the loot over to Eglon. So Ehud, verse 16, made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. By the way, do you know why it's important that it has two edges? because two edges is more deadly than one edge. We'll see that in a minute. A cubit in length. A cubit is, about, is the difference from the longest finger to the tip of the elbow. Roughly, unless you're extraordinary, roughly a distance of 18 inches. So this is a knife that's 18 inches long. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. 
So if you'll permit me, he bound this, this knife on his right thigh. Now, you wouldn't expect that if you're looking for a man to get to, if you will, he's right-handed, he's going to reach across to his left thigh, inside of his left thigh, to pull out his knife. That's not what's happening here, because Ehud wears his knife on the opposite leg because he is left-hand dominant. That's going to matter. So, verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So leave me alone. You guys hit the trail. He himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So Ehud came to him, Eglon, as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt, the hilt, for those of you not knife fluent, the hilt is the beginning of the handle. The hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone... The servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. He's in the bathroom. We're going to give him a minute. Maybe the details of the last phrase in verse 22, I'm trying to be discreet here, maybe the details of the last phrase in verse 22 rather, had created an odor that led them to believe he was in the bathroom. Don't know. You have to ask yourself, why is that detail in there? Remember how many details in the Bible don't matter? Zero. So here's a man who's just been killed with a knife, 18 inches long, stuck all the way into his belly, so much so that his intestines empty out, and he is perceived to be in the bathroom behind a locked door. Surely, he's relieving himself. Verse 25, they waited till they were embarrassed. They waited so long that we've got to check on him. So when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed between the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. So he's back across the river. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him. They seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. Well, it's one of the most strange stories in all the Bible. Would you agree? Very strange. By the way, it's going to get stranger in Judges. It's not the end of strange. But God tells us this man is left-handed and that he has the Spirit of the Lord. One of those is more important than the other, but all of those details matter. God's going to take this man and use him in a profound way to deliver Israel from the oppression. Now, I want to remind you of a couple of things that help us think rightly about this. Number one, you'll remember that the only reason the Moabites are oppressing Israel is because God sent them to be the oppressor. Moabite is a tool in the hand of God. 
Moabite is not godly, but they are a tool in the hand of God. So God is able, as they say, to hit a wicked lick with a crooked stick. God can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants for whatever purpose he determines is necessary. And he's determined that the people of God will come back to him. He will bring pressure, oppression. He will bring an opposing enemy against them so as to drive them to crush them, to crush their rebellion, to crush their apostasy, to crush their idolatry, and to point out that what they really need is not all of that, but what they really need is to look to their king, to remember that he is the king, and that he's their king, and that he has done and 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 done for them, And he will not be patronized, and he will not be ignored. He will not be marginalized. He will not be. So understand this, dear friend, as a Christian today, some thousands of years later after this story, we are reminded that the same God is the same God, yesterday, today, and forever. And he is our God, and we are his people, and he will not be patronized by us. He will not simply be satisfied with our lip service to the right and our lives to the left. He will not. He does not. He will deal with that in his own way. You say, well, he hasn't done it in 10 years, 15 years. I mean, I've been living like this. I've been doing this. I've been thinking this. I've been acting this way for a long, long, long time. Watch yourself, buddy. Because for all you know today, the Lord's going to intervene in your life in such a way as to bring about your return to Him. You say, well, God, God's mad at me. God hates me. God's angry at me, and God wants to destroy me. You don't find that in the Bible, not of, not of His own children. You find God destroying the people who are rebelling against Him and are unrepentant. But God desires that His children would repent and cry out to Him. What the book of Judges teaches us is that, on the one hand, God pays attention to our disobedience, but on the other hand, that God hears our cry for help and ultimately does rescue. You must keep those two things in tension as you're processing what God is doing in your own life. So I just want to make three applications here as we read this story. God has brought Israel Uh, to repentance, and then brings about their deliverance through Ehud, the second of six major judges. What can we learn from this story? Three things I want to mention. Number one, God is neither ignorant nor unconcerned with your life, and in particular, your sin. God's goal for you is not that you would ignore your sin, but that you would acknowledge your sin and you would repent. Remember, God's goal is not to hurt you. God's goal is not to wound you. God's goal is not to afflict you. God is not angry seeking to wound you in such a way as to somehow turn you away from God. God is rather trying to turn you back to God. The objective here is repentance. Repentance. If you are a sinner, and you are, the solution is repentance. And once you you repent, and you make appropriate restitution, then it's a done deal. The matter is closed. Move along. But in, that, in the case of the judges or the stories surrounding the book of Judges, these are people who are not repentant until this great oppression comes in their lives. God uses these Moabites to bring about their repentance. What is God doing in your life today? I, I, I couldn't know that. I don't know that. But I simply tell you that God intends for you to repent to return to God. There you'll be refreshed. There you'll be given life. There you'll feel uh, uh, the weight of shame or sorrow lifted off of you, and you can hold your head up, and you can say, thanks be to God. I am a sinner, yes, but I am forgiven. Praise God. You don't have to walk in shame. We don't. So don't. Stop doing that. Walk in the victory of the forgiveness of God and the restoration of God. Maybe for you, 
the most important verse in this section of Scripture is that last verse, verse 30. And the land had rest for 80 years. What happens when people repent? They have freedom. They have rest. Praise God. Praise God. There's a second thing we can take away from this story, and that is that the characteristics of your life are part of God's gift to you to be used for His glory. I mentioned this man Ehud is left-handed. <laughs> you think God knew he was left-handed when He decided He would be the judge He would set His spirit on that would send into battle? You think do you, God knew that Ehud was left-handed? Yeah, because, you know, after all, he is left-handed because God made him left-handed. So not only did he know it, he caused it. So do not somehow despise the details of your life. I'll tell you, as a counselor, pastoral counselor, helping people process their stuff, invariably people want to circle back to something that happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. It might have been some sin done to them. It might have been some 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 difficulty, it might have been some terrible experience. I'm not minimizing any of that, but, but the reality is we think that somehow because we had that deal, now we're broken or busted, and that somehow God could never use us. Well, that's crazy. That's a lie. Do you know how many people are as broken as we are? All of them. So we need some lefties in the world. Why? Because there are other lefties. We need some folks who walk with a limp because there are other people who walk with a limp. Have you ever noticed how people will actually listen to people who are like them or have their own experience? You mean you you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I've been there. Okay, let's sit down. Let's have coffee. Let's talk. Let's think. Let's go to meals. Let's do whatever. We'll be buddies because we know. Okay, good. So don't despise the details of your life. I'm not telling you to rejoice in sin, rejoice in somebody else's sin. I'm not telling you to minimize the pain that you're carrying around. But I am telling you, friend, God does details. And you can't read a story about a left-handed man who takes a dagger off his right thigh and sticks it in a man's gut so much so that his intestines empty out on the floor and he drops down in his pool of blood and say, you know, God doesn't really tell us a whole lot. Well, he just did. He told us that God needed a left-handed man to hide a right-handed dagger on his right thigh because he wouldn't be suspecting of a left-handed man reaching for his dagger over there. Because God has a plan for a left-handed man. (laughs) I want to remind you that God has a plan for your life. That the details of your life. It seems to me, you know, we raised three girls. They all have straight hair. Uh, I have wavy hair. Susan doesn't. And the girls all got her hair texture. Do you know how many times the girls wish they had curly hair? A lot. Because they don't have curly hair. They would see somebody with curly hair, and they'd say, oh, I wish my hair looked like that. Susan had cancer, chemo, and all that. Hair came back real curly. I mean, like ringlets curly. She never looked better in her life than she did with that new hair. And, of course, it, for those of you who know anything about chemo, it, chemo hair straightens out and goes back to its original. So now, you know, this is, this, is the woman I, <laughs> this is the woman I dated in high school right here. Okay? So... Uh, the only thing wrong with her hair is it's not about three times longer, right? So she, she asked me all the time, how do you like my hair? I said, it's great, except it should be longer. Uh, but that's a man thing. But never I digress. So what, what matters here? We, the details of our life matter. You know, every short man wishes he were taller. Every thin man wishes he were heavier. Every weak man wishes he were stronger. And every strong man wishes he was stronger yet. We sit around and say, I wish my life were different. And I'm reminded that God has a plan. Even for your stuff. You say, well, I don't know what God wants to do with my this or my that. I don't either. 
I don't know why we need to know this Ehud fella is left-handed. Except the only way you sneak up on a guy who's looking for a right-handed dagger is to put it in your left hand. So what does God intend to do with your life? I don't know. But I assure you, friend, that with the Holy Spirit at work in your life, God intends to do things that are beyond your understanding. Stop despising the way God has assembled your life. I reflect on it often. I mentioned Daniel more than I mentioned perhaps any Old Testament character. We sang about the implications of Daniel here with the choir this morning, Psalm 46. The Lord is with us in the fire. Daniel and his three Hebrew friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, occupy a prominent place in Israel's history. But you'll remember they were young men deported to a foreign country and they never, ever, ever got to go home. Ever. They were deported to Babylon and they died in Babylon. He said, well, why would God not let a good man, and Daniel is a good man. I mean, of all the people in the Bible who we could use that term for, we could certainly use it for Daniel. Daniel is a good man. Why, was, why would God not let Daniel go home? Because that was not God's plan for Daniel. Why would God not let Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go home? Because that was not God's plan for those three men. He said, well, if I were God, well, you're not God. You don't get to be God. You just get to be the servant of God. And sometimes the servant of God hides a dagger on his right thigh. And sometimes the servant of God goes into a lion's den. But the servant of God goes where God sends him to go. And usually, dare I say, always, God sends the servant of God where he wants him to go based on the equipment that God has given him. The parameters of his life, the details of his life. If you were raised like that, you've got influence with other people like that. If you had that experience, then you've got influence with other people who have those experiences. If you are you, you matter to God. And the fact that you're constantly trying to be somebody else is not productive. It is a fertile soil from which the enemy can build a mansion, not to the glory of God, but to the glory of those who are angry at God, or disappointed in God, or frustrated with God. Stop doing that. God made Ehud left-handed, which means he's qualified to be the judge that's going to stick a knife in Eglon's belly. No righty would do there's a third thing and that is you need rest you need rest it's interesting this phrase it's there at the end of verse 30 the land had rest for 80 years you'll see that if you just look back up to verse 11 you'll see the similar phrase verse 11 this is the end of Othniel's judging so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel died. Ehud is the judge at the latter half of chapter 3. And at the end, the Bible says the land had rest. We haven't got to Deborah or to Gideon yet. But at the end of the sections on Deborah and Gideon, it's going to say, and the land had rest, and the land had rest. Turns out, remember, that's the last cycle, the last portion of the cycle. So there's going to be sin, there's going to be oppression, there's going to be repentance, there's going to, God's going to send a deliverer, and then there's going to be peace. Or to use the term the Bible uses, rest. There's going to be rest. I think about rest all the time. Uh, first of all, I'm a, a human being. I get tired. I'm married to Susan. She has a very exacting honeydew list. So I get tired all the time. And uh, that's fine, by the way, that the only antidote, the only alternative to that is just to sit around and rest more. And uh, who needs that much rest, right? Movement is medicine, so get up and get moving, Mississippi. But maybe you need rest. 
thought about some examples. I've never met a young mother of preschoolers who didn't say, man, I could use some rest. These days, medical professionals, after two years of dealing with COVID pandemic, every last one of them needs rest. They all need about 30 days at the beach, and then they'll sign up for a second month. I think about the hard-charging, ambitious executive guy or wannabe executive guy who's trying to make a name for himself. He needs to rest. He needs to go home and meet his family again. I think about those highly fatigued grandparents whose grandchildren have come to live with them because their son or their daughter has become irresponsible or maybe a drug addict or maybe even incarcerated. And now you have 60 and 70-year-old folks trying to raise 4-year-olds and 7-year-olds and 9-year-olds and 14-year-olds. They need some rest. And there's a lot of other examples of people who need rest. Every last one of us have taken on too much. We're overscheduled, perhaps, and we need rest. The Bible says in Judges that Israel had rest. But it turns out that the rest is tied to a judge. And there is a universal problem with every universal judge, or rather every earthly judge, and that is they die. They die. Go back to verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11. This is the end of Othniel's time, right? So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. That's right. Man, we've got our hero. We've got our man. We've got our king who's not a king. He's a judge, but he, you know, he's like a king. He's ruling. He's, you know, he's, he's taking names. You know, he, he's really, he's the man. He's the man. He's the man until he's not because then he's dead because every earthly leader is going to die. And that's a problem for those of us who are tired, tired of it, tired in it, We're tired. We're tired of the fight. We're tired of the struggle. We're tired of the sin. We're we're tired of the details. We're we're just tired. We're looking for rest. I'm so tired. Well, in order to understand what the Bible means by rest, you've got to look to the New Testament. So I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll land the plane right here. Hebrews chapter (coughs) 4. In fact, we should start chapter 3. I can't read all this. You won't give me that much time. But I would commend to you chapter 3 and chapter 4. Read it, read it all. But I want you to notice what happens here. He's tried to encourage. The point of chapter 3 is to encourage them to look to Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than, than the temple. Jesus is better than the sacrifice. Jesus is better than any uh, Old Testament lamb, bull, goat, anything. His blood is better. His promises are better. His covenant's better. That's the whole story of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. So in chapter 3, the first paragraph, we're not going to read it. He's, he's basically saying, don't let go of Jesus. And then he uses an Old Testament illustration of what happens to people who let go. He's saying, don't let go. And he used an Old Testament illustration of those who did let go. And he quotes Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 quotes the book of Numbers. We don't have time to go back and show you all this, but here's Psalm 95, verse 7, chapter 3, Hebrews. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. That's a reference to the children of Israel wandering in the desert, where your fathers put me to the test, saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, there's our word, rest. You need rest, right? God says, I'll give you rest. We're going to send you into the promised land, and you're going to have rest. Except they didn't. Read the book of Joshua. Read the book of Judges. 
And you say, these people are not at rest. These people are at war. It's constant war, 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 war. That feels like my life. Every day I get up, it's a struggle. Every day I get up, it's hard. Every day I get up, it's lonely. Every day I get up, it's wrong. Every day I get up, it's not rest. What am I doing wrong? Well, you might be doing something wrong, but you might not be. Because he's going to use that word, rest, and he's now going to preach. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Don't let go of God, but exhort one another every day. That means go to church where you can exhort people. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't turn away from Christ. Look to Christ. Join to Christ. Cling to Christ. Hold on to Christ. Don't let go of Christ. Because if you do, you'll never have rest. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? He's quoting Psalm 95 here. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Or, to use my word, to those who let go. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, by the way, this is Genesis 2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Again in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, quoting Psalm 95, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For... And here's the money quote. For if God had given them rest, when did God promise them rest? He promised them rest in the desert. You're wandering in the wilderness. We're about to cross over. When we, when we get in the promised land, you're going to have food. You're going to have houses. You're going to have water. You're going to have all this. Just follow me. Just, just follow me. Please, just follow me. Just do what I say. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, and where does God speak of another day later on? Psalm 95. Who writes Psalm 95? David. Where does David come after Joshua? It was Joshua, then 200 years of Judges, then Saul, then David. So David's still 300 years in the future from Joshua. So if Joshua's going to give you rest, why 300 years later does God still talk about a future rest? Because it turns out that the earthly rest, the promised land, is not the prize. Do you feel me? The promised land is not here. It's not here. You say, well, man, this is a great life. We get to move into a house we didn't build. We get to drink from wells we didn't dig. We get to inherit livestock we didn't acquire, all that. I mean, that's, that's, that, is, that is great living. Until it's not. Until in the midst of all the blessings of God, you forget God. And you let go. You decouple. You pull up anchor. And you say, what really matters is here. What really matters is this culture. It really matters. What really matters in my life is those beautiful women. I don't care if they're Canaanite. They're beautiful. What really matters is that good-looking guy. I don't care if he's Canaanite. 
He's a good-looking guy, and he can, he can take care of me. He's got credentials. What really matters to me is this life, because this is the life that promises rest. Watch this. Verse 9 says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God after David. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive. You want to know what you're supposed to be working on? It's not, a, it's not your earthly kingdom, friend. It's not your houses and wells and livestock herds. You say, well, I got responsibilities. Yes, that's, that's not the point, right? It, it means that's not the reason you're living. Your living is not for these things. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For, watch this, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any Ehud strapped to your right thigh, double-edged sword. What's sharper than Ehud? The Spirit of God filling Ehud, giving him a left hand, reaching for a right scabbard knife to stick it in the belly of a fat man. What's sharper than Ehud? The Word of God. Why did Eglon die? Because the Word of God declared, this is your day to die. Who's in charge? Not you. Not me. Not us. Not them. Not those. But God of very God is in charge. There is one king, and he doesn't live in these parts. And he is our king. And let us leave here today looking for the promised rest indeed. And it's not a piece of dirt in the Middle East, and it's sure not a piece of dirt anywhere else. It's a land that is fairer than day. And one day, we shall not cross the Jordan, but we shall cross the great river. And we shall go to enter into that rest. Let us long for that. Let us look for that. Let us make sure that we keep our hearts fixed on Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And he is the one whose word is sharper than any double-edged sword. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, how we love you. How we thank you that you love us. That's the most important. What is so important now is that you love us. And that you're at work to bring us to you. I pray God, if there be any here without you, that they would repent and come to Jesus the one who gave himself and gave to us the promise of rest. Jesus is the only antidote for all the noise in our lives. Let us please rest in you today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.